Good morning. Hi, I'm Marion Osborne. Our reading is from Galatians 4. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing the children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem from above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, but just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. It's good to be with you all. Um, 
it's, uh, it, this is a, a joy to me because this is something that I did a lot when I was working in campus ministry. I was, I was an ordained minister, um, but I was supported by many churches around the state. And so Johnny and I were talking right before the service, and I had the chance to go visit all kinds of churches uh, probably 20 times a year. I was driving around the state and visiting churches that were supporting us. Uh, but now I work at a church, and I have to go to that church every single week, almost. And so it's really good to be here and to see what is going on um, at Christ Church. So uh, what Johnny told me, and I hope he was telling the truth, is that um, you guys have been walking through the letter of St. Paul to the Galatians for a while. And uh, some of you that are here are familiar with the Bible, some of you are not. Um, But Galatians is this letter in the New Testament, this this wonderful and pointed letter, where Paul is urging a group of people who live in this place called Galatia. Uh, He's urging this group of people who say that they love Jesus and really like probably want to love Jesus really well. He's urging them to remember what the good news is, what the gospel is, even in his absence. You saw that a little bit in the text we just read, but this is going on through the whole letter. He's urging them to cling to this good news of Jesus Christ Christ, with all they have. And the thing that Paul's driving home here in this text, which uh, if you were able to pay attention for the reading, it's very strange. Uh, The thing that he's driving home here uh, is that to be embraced by God, as he has come to us in Jesus Christ, is the thing that you were made for. It's the thing that you were made for. And it will set you free in the truest sense of that word. So, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for this morning and for this church and for the invitation to come and to preach uh, and to be with these saints in worship. God, I pray that you would meet us uh, in our gathering today as you promised to do. Um, I pray that you would meet us in our singing and in our praying and in our listening to your word, read and preached, and in our feasting at your table. And God, I pray for me that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Um, Well, one of the things that uh, you learn when you get married, I've been married for five years now, which is not that long, but it's long enough to learn a lot of things. And one of the things that you learn uh, pretty early on is that, uh, it'd be interesting to hear if, if this sounds familiar, there are different theories of gift giving in different families. So my family, my mom, uh, is a wonderful woman. I love her very much. One of her things is that she doesn't want to be told what to buy you for like Christmas or your birthday. She wants to be told something in the realm of what you want, and then she wants to be able to put her personal touch on it. Anybody resonate with this? Yes? Now, that usually ends up with like a lot of returns, um, but this is just how she likes to do it. Um, And so that's the family culture I'm coming from. My wife is from a family culture where it is, uh, you tell me exactly what you want, and I'm going to get it for you, and if I don't get you exactly what you want, it means that I don't care about you, right? Some, some of you may feel this way as well. Um, well, one of the other uh, family cultural things that we learned pretty early on in our relationship is that families treat birthdays way differently. In my family, um, we ha- I have three siblings. I'm a twin, and so uh, I, ha- I share a birthday with my twin sister, but then I was also born on my dad's birthday. So there's three of us that share the same birthday, and then my younger sister was born the day before. So there's four of six birthdays in two days. Um, which is fine, and it just means that like in my whole, for my whole life, the bir- my birthday was never only about me. It was like a family thing. It was, I got celebrated, but we were also celebrating other things, and usually the central, the central event was like a big meal that we would go out and celebrate with, right? Um, my wife is an only child, and uh, that means that birthdays were a very big deal in her house, 
And the first birthday that we had together while, she, while we were dating, um, we found out that there was a very big difference in how we treated gifts. And uh, you know, we, we met and, and started dating in seminary, and I was flat broke in seminary for four years. And I, we, I, I planned a whole thing. Like, we planned to meet a bunch of people at a bar, but it was a bar that she didn't really like. And then she told me I could say this story, by the way. Um, and I took her out to a dinner, and we were in the middle of the dinner. Or actually, we, I asked for the check, and we're about to leave, and she kind of looks at me and was like, did you not get me anything? And I was like, babe, I just bought you like a $75 meal. I don't know what you're talking about. And she's like, no, 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 no. The meal is the venue for the gift. The meal is the venue for the gift. And then we both just stared at each other in like, we, both, both of us like transformed into monsters in each other's eyes. And we were like, I can't believe that you're such a wicked person. Um, but the point of telling the story is that uh, my wife's expectations in this scenario, and I have done this and I'm sure you have done this, her expectations about the nature of the gift that was coming to her um, kept her from receiving the actual gift. And the gift was, you know, time and a meal together, and it was all that I could give her. It was all that I could give her. And one, that is a similar dynamic as to what's going on in this text. There's a group of people who have been given a great gift, and they're struggling to live in it. They're struggling to continue to receive it. And so we're going to walk through this text in, in three ways. We're going to talk about the gift of freedom. We're going to talk about the trouble with freedom. And then we're going to talk about the, the walking the way of freedom. So one of, the, one of the best ways of understanding what it means to be a human being, and especially uh, one of the critical ways of understanding what it means to be a Christian, is this word gift. Gift. To be a human is to be one who has received life, like you didn't choose it. You didn't decide to be born. You didn't, receive, you didn't, you didn't choose the lungs with which you breathe. You didn't choose the body that sustains you. You didn't, you didn't make any of it for yourself. It came to us before there was an us, right? From outside of us. It was gifted to us. Our life, our bodies, everything was gifted to us. All that we are. Life is gift. Now, this is true even if you're not a Christian. I think you can realize this. But if you are a Christian, part of what it means to be a Christian is to embrace this reality, the reality of the gift, to understand that you are spiritually alive, reconciled to God, bound to one another by God's Spirit, pardoned for all your sin, drawn up into participation in the very life of God, called into his mission, and promised the culmination, of the, the consummation of heaven and earth where there will be no more pain, no more death, no more injustice, and we will actually see God as he is. All of this you have because God has given it to you. What do we have that we did not receive? Nothing. Now, one of the consequences of this is that, in Christian, uh, that Christians in all times and all places ought to recognize, but often even now, and even I, and I'm sure you, struggle to, to, to recognize is that if all is gift, then we who were once slaves to sin are now free. And this is what Paul's getting at, and here's what I mean. If you look at verse 8, it says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. To be without God, to be without union with God in Christ, is to be a slave to, to beings that are by nature not gods. Now what does that mean? Well, sin in the New Testament is described in a lot of ways, and one of the ways, one of the, one of the most helpful and chief ways is that sin is slavery, it's, it's imprisonment, you're bound, you're in chains to sin, and your heart and the directions of your affection 
your love and your desire. They are bent to serve that which is not God. Just these beings that are by nature not gods, right? Like Dylan was right. You've got to serve somebody. And one thing you've got to understand about the Christian account of God is that he is, just, he is not another kind of thing. This is a little bit tricky, but I want you to go with me. So one of the ways we tend to think about God is like you've got, like you've got a soccer ball, you've got a human being, and you've got God. They're all things. God's just like way bigger and way stronger and more powerful than the others, right? That's the way sometimes we tend to think about God. But in Christian theology, the way that we understand God and the way that emerges from the Bible is that the fundamental difference between God and creation or us and God or anything in God isn't size or strength or power. It's that God is an entirely different thing altogether. It's even a stretch to say he's a thing because God created everything, right? Everything that exists receives that existence. It's very, the very fact of its being from God at every point so that if God were to stop existing, so would everything else. This helps us understand how sin works and why Paul here talks about separation from God as slavery. Now, one of the most profound effects of sin is to persuade us that created stuff, things, these things are worth giving ourselves to completely, like even good stuff, family, work, even church. If you love it for its own sake, you become enslaved to it. When we begin to believe that this or that thing, even if it's a good thing, is the thing we are made for, and that in it we will find the satisfaction that we are longing for. And, and you know what I'm talking about. The longing that keeps you up at night, the longing that you can't even find quite the right words for, the sense that there's got to be more, the kind of longing that like hits me at like 9.30 usually every night and sends me into the kitchen looking for something, but I don't know what. And it never satisfies. What Paul is getting at here is that the satisfaction you get from any created thing, and by being a thing, is by its nature not God, can only ever be partially true satisfaction. Any good thing we find in this life is only good because it receives that goodness from God. And to enjoy the good thing without turning you eventually to gratitude to God if you don't enjoy God more because of a good thing, you're going to miss the point. And it shortchanges the pleasure we receive from created things that are good. Do you, do you see how this works? It won't work. Because whatever it is, whatever this thing is, is not God. It will not love you back, not the way you want it to. Money, sex, power, food, drink, status, marriage, kids, grandkids, even good things made ultimate things, will be crushed under the weight of your desire for God. You want God, actually, underneath it all. If you read literally any celebrity biography, you know this. Or if you have an honest look at your own heart, you know it. You and I were made for life with God, and that's what we want. It's what's behind all of our longings, as twisted and wicked as those longings will and can become. But to know God, to receive the new life that we receive from God in Christ, is to receive the thing that you, that you long for, that you were made for. And listen, it is to be set free. So there is a deep gift. All of life is a gift, and one of the aspects of that gift is freedom. When you come to God, as he's made known to us in Jesus Christ. Now the problem with all this talk about freedom isn't so much with freedom as it is with us. And one of those problems is that we don't really know what freedom means. 
in the true sense, the true sense of that word, in the sense that God gives us. And, and freedom in the Bible and freedom in Christian theology is not the same thing as like the American vision of liberal democracy. Uh, it's not freedom from every restraint. That's not Christian freedom. It's not like the Lone Ranger out to do whatever he or she wants. Freedom in the Christian vision and true actual freedom, full stop, is living in line with how you were made to live, right? Like trying to paint a canvas with a megaphone is an insane proposition. It's not going to work. It's only going to leave you bitter and disappointed if you thought it was going to work. But we don't think that's going to work. Why? Because it's obvious to us that that's not what a megaphone is made for. You painting with a brush. (laughs) Go with me. Painting with a brush, which is designed for that purpose. Oh, it is freedom, and it leads to beautiful things. Beautiful things. So it is with us. Created things. We are created things, and that means that God has made us in a certain way for certain things. Real freedom emerges in the presence of the right boundaries. That's the way Paul, or the way Paul puts it in Romans, is that to be a Christian, actually, you are at the same time free, but you are free because you are a slave to righteousness. You're not going to understand what he means if you think that freedom is only freedom from all restraint. Freedom is living within the right restraints. Slaves to righteousness. It is freedom because it's what you're made for. So that's one reason why we have a hard time understanding freedom. The other trouble we have with it is that um, we don't know how to live this way. We don't know how to live as people who receive the gift. Who have done nothing to get it who will do nothing to keep it, because that means we're not in control. This is what was happening in Galatia too. If you look at verses 9 and 10, he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Now, these, ob- these um, observances, as best we can tell, were actions that were being made by, they were being made requirements for Gentiles, that is to say non-Jews, Gentile converts to the faith. They were, made, they were requirements to remain in God's good graces. You have to do this thing or, or that thing to keep God happy, but that is not how God works. And this is why Paul's so mad about it. And just as a side note, like, this is an Anglican church, I'm relatively new to the Anglican tradition, but if this is how you think, this is what you think Anglican worship is doing for you, you've got a problem. You're mistaken. It's not keeping you in God's good graces. Our relationship with God is not built or sustained by some process of exchange between us and him. I'll do this for you if you do that, and we'll be cool. It's not about that. It's not surprising we struggle with this because we have so little practice with this kind of thing. The, the way the, the world around us works is this process of exchange. The economy works this way. Obviously, uh, relationships tend to work this way, and we end up treating God this way. And the Galatians and us fall back so quickly into this habit of exchange, of religious observance in the hope that God would reciprocate in some way. Instead of living as people of the gift, secure and at peace. Because God does not take his gifts back. He has given it to you and he will not take it back. 
Now, this is the point of this whole strange section in verses 21 to 31. I don't know if anybody was uh, slightly confused about what was going on. If you remember this bit about Sarah and Hagar and this mountain and that city, anybody? It's one of the weirdest sections in the New Testament, and, um, but this is the point, this, and this is how we get to the way of freedom. We are people of the gift, and because of that, we are free, and the call is to live as people who are free. What Paul's doing here is an allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament, and we don't have time to get into like the minutia of what makes something allegorical, but he says that it's allegorical. He's doing, he's a t- Here's a, here's a quick attempt to say what allegorical interpretation is. It's taking a, the, the true theological vision that we find in the full revelation in the, in the New Testament and then going back and creatively looking at how the older story may, have been, may be used to kind of shed some more light on what's going on. That's as far as we're going to go with it. Um, there are lots of books about it. You can get those. Um, so Paul's doing a little bit of allegorical interpretation to drive home his point that we are people of the gift called to live uh, as people who are free. Now, a little bit of background is helpful. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's going to be even more strange of a section. So uh, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah was the, the wife of a guy named Abraham. They are the, the, um, the parents of all of the faithful people of God. They show up in the book of Genesis, um, beginning in chapter 12 and moving on. And one of the things about their life was that God called them out of where they were, and he gave them three promises. And one of those promises was that they were going to be the parents of a multitude. But they went something like 10 to 12 years, wandering around in the desert, fighting off, you know, random tribes, and then a whole bunch of other stuff, and they didn't have any kids. They hadn't had one kid. So instead of living... As people who are free, people of the gift, and trusting in the promises of God, they decided, and Sarah in particular, decided to try to take control. Sarah told her husband to have sex with one of her servants, and he did, and she got pregnant, and she had a son named Ishmael. It got Abraham the kid, but it was a rejection of the gift. It was an attempt to control, which is to become a slave again. And in time, in a long time, Sarah eventually did have her own child after she went through menopause, which is the crazy part of the story, to emphasize, to re-emphasize, as it were, that this is a gift. God is giving this to you, that the promises of God were true. And Paul is saying that living as one who trusts in the promises of God, who trusts in the gift, is freedom. The NRSV, which is a different translation, um, puts it a little bit differently, and it says, speaking of Sarah, it says, she is free, and she is our mother. She is free, and she is our mother. And if you know the story, she wasn't even that good at waiting. We just talked about how she tried to control the situation, to control God. But she also didn't believe that God would actually do it, and with each passing year, it looked less and less likely, but she is free, and she is our mother. Because however poorly she waited, God is faithful to his promises, and she learned to live as a receiver and not a manipulator. So listen to me. If you are here, and if you're a Christian, God has given, at the same time, he has given that which in the deepest corner of your heart and my heart, we want. 
that thing for which our hearts burn, that longing that is so painful and so enduring. God, by his spirit, has taken up residence in you. And it is a great gift. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, life with God is the thing that you were made for. And it's the only way. It's the only way to be truly free in this life. But man, it does not feel that way. It doesn't always look that way. It doesn't look that way when we walk the streets of our cities, when we, when we wander the halls of our homes, when we have an honest look in the mirror at who we are and what we've done and what's been done to us. To live the way of freedom is to live as people who trust the promise. Verse 28. It's not verse 28, I wrote it down wrong. But you, my friends, are children of the promise. Now I can't say why God seems so slow in fulfilling those promises. There is no easy answer. But God has never failed to keep a promise. He has promised to make all things new, even our very bodies. And to walk the way of freedom is to resist the temptation to lapse back into the illusion, and it is an illusion, that you can control God. Whatever form that takes, God does not break his promises. He has given them to us as a gift, and so we are free. And the call is to live like free men and women, because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word to us. Um, this encouragement that we can receive as we peek into the situation in Galatia in the first century. God, I pray that as we, as we live the days of our lives, as we walk the streets of our cities, that we would be people who trust that you are the one who gives and keeps promises, that you are the one who has given himself to us and that you are what we really want and everything else is a counterfeit. God, I pray that you would bless me and bless these people as they go out this week into the work that they have been called uh, into doing. And I pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen.